Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies in New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's episode, we're going to talk with Caden Rodems Boyd, a 17-year-old who recently finished directing his first feature-length movie, a cyborg buddy action flick called Ace. We'll talk with Boyd about how this movie came together, what kinds of movies inspire him, and some challenges and benefits of being a high school filmmaker in New Haven today. So without further ado, Caden, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Hi. So we met a few weeks ago at uh, Best Video, the video rental store and performance space, uh, at a workshop that you were presenting at called The Nuts and Bolts of Making Movies. And there, during your portion of the presentation, you introduced The Room and myself to your movie, Ace. So I think at the top of our conversation, I'd like you to do just that again. So tell me and the audience, people who may not know you and your work, what is Ace about? Ace takes place in, well... I want to preface this by saying that uh, Ace is a satire. This is all going to sound cheesy coming out. Um, but Ace takes place in the year, I believe, 20, 2048. Uh, and it goes from 2048 to 2050. Uh, and in this not-so-distant future, America has collapsed. Uh, gangs are the law. The law is written in blood. Um, and we center around two boys who we meet when they're 14 years old, uh, who's, who do not have parents and are essentially trying to make some way for themselves to be successful and survive in this, uh, situation. And what they do is they, they create a gang, uh, and ultimately that gang rises to power and the two of them, uh, have some character transformation and, turn into you know worse people uh as they have a falling out one of them ultimately shoots the other and has a moral dilemma he feels that he's become a bad person he can't believe his friend is dead wait his friend isn't dead he's come back as a cyborg vowing revenge as as they want to do yeah you know it's a story of my life man so one, there are a lot of things that I you know, really love about this movie, and I'm interested in breaking down a couple of the influences, maybe what other films or filmmakers you're drawing from. But one of the things that I so appreciate about this is how, you know, on the face of it, it is a you know a movie about a cyborg, about kids and gangs, uh, a lot of violence, uh, a lot of you know, on the face of it, vulgarity and time hopping and stuff. But it is very much a character-driven action flick. I mean, you are focusing entirely upon the relationship between these two teenagers at the center of it. Um, and their relationship and the dynamics of the relationship really uh, is, is the heart of, of every scene. No matter what is taking place between char- you know, characters, there's always that central relationship driving the story forward. And I wonder if that was, when you were first thinking about putting this movie together, maybe turning it into a, this story into a feature length film. Was it the, the action, the, the story that was first, you know, at the front of mind that I really wanted to show, you know, samurai sword fights, uh, on, on a grassy, you know, green field, or was it, I want to work through a couple of these characters and their relationships and, uh, you know, see how far I can stress that and still say something meaningful about the world in which they live. Or maybe a bit of both. Well, I think when I first started out, I wrote the script. Uh, I was in freshman year of high school, and I wrote the script just on my phone 
uh, when I didn't want to do work during classes. And um, I think it was about 25 pages, and it was meant to be something that we could do in a week over the summer. Um, that was just like a fun thing we could post on YouTube or something like that. And I wrote it, and it was very cheesy. It was very, very over the top, and it was about... Basically, what I knew was I wanted to do something with a cyborg, and I liked westerns. And um, I wrote that, and I showed it to my friends, and I was semi-excited about it, and everything we'd done before then was very short and, um, you know, very low budget. And they read it, and they said, this is exciting. I don't think I can do it this summer because I'm signed up for these five camps, and, uh, you know, I'm going on vacation. And ultimately... It just wasn't going to happen that summer. So over the summer, I think I spent probably 500 hours just going over the script and looking at all the characters. And I said, oh, it would be cool if all four of these main characters were in a scene at once together. So I would write that scene. And I probably wrote a total of uh, 30, 40 scenes um, in a continuous timeline. And then I looked over them and I said... 15 of these scenes are really necessary and important to the story. These are the ones that I think we should film. And over the course, I think I naturally found um, a real connection between these two characters and something that I was able to relate to and I knew my actors would be able to relate to as well. And I think it became something that was much more cerebral and deep and uh, emotionally driven. And in doing that, I think we also kept the element of over-the-top action and ridiculous sci-fi, and we were able to work that into a satirical kind of commentary on the genre as a whole. This movie feels very much like the the work of uh, a unique individual. I mean, it feels like a script written by you know a, a single person and directed by a single person who has a very specific vision for the story that they want to tell and how they want to tell it. But you also have... A lot. Of, I know we're going to talk about this, um, the kind of influence of Quentin Tarantino, but there is a lot of, you know, casual kind of almost workplace chattiness to the movie where these kids are in a gang, but also many of the scenes kind of in preface to the outbursts of action and violence are, uh, you know, introduced by, you know, five, ten minutes of dialogue about frustration with... Uh, this dystopian world in which they exist, uh, grappling with what exactly is the American dream uh, and and how does one realize it in uh, in in the world in which they exist. And I wonder if uh, if this was the the story and the themes that you were looking to work out in in this movie, something that your friends and collaborators were kind of fully on board with from the very start. Were they kind of helping write out the dialogue? Were they? imagining how these characters would develop or is this something where you gave them the full script you said this is what i want to do everyone was like i don't get it but i want to do it too because it sounds cool i think that uh leading up to this we would do a lot of things that were very easy to make you know we couldn't afford to buy a 50 dollar prop revolver we couldn't afford to make a fire effect um and so we would essentially just record us you know record short videos of like guys being dudes and teenagers chatting around, uh, making humorous small talk. And I think that the skills that I learned from that and from being able to make a 10, 20 minute film out of pretty much purely dialogue between teenage boys um, helped me a lot in writing these scenes in which we have 
these people who are in a crazy situation um, that is depressing and apocalyptic, but they are still teenage boys and they still have a desire to talk to eat pizza or uh, eat candy, talk about movies, talk about video games and stuff like that. And I think um, when they do start trying to find a purpose in that world and talking about the American dream, uh, talking about who is responsible for what has happened to the world. I think that um, a lot of that happened from stuff that uh, I would talk about with my friends and stuff that we would observe where I think as you become an adult, you find yourself not being happy at times and you look for things to blame. And I think um, in this movie, one thing that they lash out at they lash out at a lot is the situation that they're in and uh, the state of the country. And um, I think that in order to kind of immerse the characters in that, it was really helpful to be able to just observe uh, people talking around me. And a lot of scenes, we would come in with a script uh, of what we wanted to say. We would run through it a few times and we would figure out that parts weren't working. And so I would just turn the camera on and have them improvise and kind of bounce off each other. And then rather than taking the dialogue we had written down, take from that and cut it down a little bit and make a scene out of that. It was good working on such a low budget because we were able to be flexible like that. This movie has a very uh, specific kind of visual strategy, and kind of visual vocabulary that it uses throughout. Uh, and it's something that's really exciting to see in such a young filmmaker because uh, as you know, everyone at, best video, whether it be Gorman Bouchard or Jay Miles or a number of other professional filmmakers we're talking about during that practicum, is that there is a uh, vocabulary, a kind of aesthetic vocabulary that's developed over the century that movies have existed that filmmakers, when they're aware of, can deploy to really, um, really strong effect. And I think that your movie uh, pays a lot of attention to composition within frames, to uh, the makeup and design and uh, costumes of specific characters. Uh, but let's, I, I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing about, and also, I mean, also your presentation at Best Video, what everyone I think responded so well to was that you showed storyboards and kind of drawings that you had made before you even started making the movie uh, on a screen behind you as you spoke. And then you had those, you know, transition kind of dissolve into final photographs from the shoot so that people in attendance could see this is how I imagined the the frame to look like, and this is what, and this is how close I came to actually realizing it. So maybe can you tell me and the listeners a bit about what what were you thinking of accomplishing visually for this movie when when you started? You know, after you had your uh, five hundred hours worth of um, you know five hundred hours going into working on the script, yeah. uh, and you'd really hammered it out with, with friends, uh, and you knew you had a very low budget, but when you thought about how to realize this through, you know visual representation in the movie? What, what were you thinking about? Uh, I think that one thing that really excited me making this movie was getting into the visuals and the way that we did the camera work because I think, uh, you, you, know, you, I, you know this, you can have a semi-decent script and amazing visuals and cinematography and that can kind of make or break the movie. And I think uh, one thing that we were really excited about with this movie was it's a movie of extremes and kind of overstatement. Um, and that's, I think, part of being a teenager is uh, there's not much subtlety to it. So when doing the cinematography, we thought a lot about 
rather than just setting a camera on one angle and filming an actor and setting a camera on another angle and filming an actor, how do we make this dynamic and how do we make it really energizing and um, immersive for the audience? And a lot of what we did for that was long, long shots where five people are arguing in a room and we just go from one to the next to the next back to the other one. And the good thing is, you know, we didn't have to build any sets. We were able to film just in rooms and houses on location. So we had a full 360 degree view of everything. And I think that being able to suck the audience into that and have them kind of feel like rather than just passively watching this fight between five people, they are kind of in the fight was something that was exciting to me. Uh, But it it was also something that was very frustrating on set because People would come in not knowing what scene we were filming, not knowing any lines, and we'd have to have them say five monologues in a row, and uh, that could get very tedious. But I think that keeping the energy up uh, through the scenes that are supposed to be energized was really important for me, because then in the scenes where it's total silence for two minutes and the camera is still and you're really just watching the actors silently work off each other, I think it becomes much more impactful and effective because it flips it on its head and uh, kind of throws the audience for a loop. Um, you know, I think that this is a really good dem- this is a really good demonstration of uh, you know successful low budget filmmaking that still uses a very complex visual vocabulary. Because yeah, as you were speaking, you know, it makes a lot of sense that many of the you know scenes that I was most affected by were ones where there was a very strong kind of vertical divide right down the center of the frame, whether it be a computer monitor standing right in between two quarreling characters or a samurai sword, you know, thrust right into the the middle of the field. And that is a very, um, you know, inexpensive way to have a very strong kind of architectural impact upon the frame without building any sets. That vertical divide technique was a technique that we used over and over again in the course of the film um, because a lot of the emotional struggle of the film is people becoming friends meeting each other being uh loving towards each other and over time because of the situation or because of their personalities becoming divided and you know uh i i never talk about it with my actors because they all tell me to shut up uh because um i just get pretentious and full of myself but i say like listen no we gotta have this computer monitor in between you guys because there's a barrier between you two and they say Caden, whatever. I don't just do your thing. We'll, I mentioned we'll at the time of filming, lines. they can't even really they feel can't even that really barrier, see it. right? Right. Yeah. Um, but that's something that I tried to pay a lot of attention to is having the cinematography reflect the emotional state of the character. So as the film goes on, uh, it alternates between past and present uh, and flashbacks and what's currently happening. And uh, both of those, the storylines get sequentially darker and uh more serious and the cinematography reflects that uh in that the characters by the end are very dimly lit uh a lot of the time their shadows covering their faces uh they're bandaged um and they they're pretty much talking to each other a lot of the time in total darkness or uh just in kind of a black uh abyss a lot of the time you see a sliver of lighting on their face and not much else and I think that's a classic technique to kind of represent the emotional uh, thing that they're going through. And so a lot of that I learned just from watching movies and seeing what the great filmmakers did and the not so great filmmakers, but maybe great cinematographers did. 
So before we move on with the discussion, I want to say that you're listening to Deep Focus on 103.5 FM. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and we're talking with 17-year-old filmmaker Caden Rodems boyd who recently finished his first feature film, Ace. Uh, another uh, technique that I was you know, really impressed by and noticed a lot uh, in this movie was how you filmed action sequences, particularly the climactic one, the raid of a high school kind of gang lair set to the tune of In the Hall of the Mountain King, uh, in which Ace uh, kind of kills his way to the center to to find his, you know, his buddy who he is now looking to slaughter. But the... It, the scene is filmed entirely in one take. It's probably two or three minutes straight. And you or whoever with the camera follows Ace as he knocks down, uh, you know, character after character to the tune of In the Hall of the Mountain King. And most of it is played sped up. Uh, it's yeah. in kind of a fast motion. And along with the tune, which has wonderful kind of cinematic references, both to, I, I'm pretty sure it's in Fantasia, at least that's yeah. what I was thinking. Yeah. But also that's the tune that Peter Laurie's character whist, uh, whistles in M. Yeah, so it that has, is, that's the exact reference we were making. It's is, both uh, playful and very sinister. <laughs> yeah. Um, but tell me about that. I mean, there are a lot of kind of sped up sequences in action scenes. And I wonder why you chose that way to depict action and also what, what else were you thinking of when you thought you know this is going to be a, a big battle scene how can i a low budget high school filmmaker uh, make this happen in a compelling way well one thing that we were somewhat worried about was that uh we just weren't going to be able to get the action scenes right because that's one of the hardest things to do on a really low budget and um i think one thing that we continuously wanted to do with this movie was comment on action movies both both modern and from the 80s and one thing that you see in action movies all the time now is that they're sped up and they are kind of hard to follow and it can alienate the audience a little bit and one thing we wanted to play with was as the movie goes on giving the audience almost a sense of surrealism because i think that is kind of a feeling if anyone has ever um had an anxiety attack or uh, emotional, just been completely like overwrought with emotions. I think that you can become disconnected and life can feel surreal. And one thing that we wanted to say was that's kind of how it is for these characters at the moment. Um, things are almost becoming too action movie-esque for them because of the situation that they've kind of put themselves in. And uh, so when filming this really long take, I, well... First of all, I didn't film the first half of it because we had about 25 extras scheduled to come for that day and about six texted us, yeah, I'm coming. And the rest just didn't respond or said, no, I can't make it. So what we did was the first extra that you see walking down the hallway um, was me in a sweatshirt and a mask. And uh, I walk past, I get killed. Uh, I think I get a machete in the head. Um which was fun. Uh, You're killed a number of times. In yeah, I'm killed many, many times <laughs> in this movie. For you as an actor. Uh, which was exciting. Um, and then the camera turns around, and in that turn, the camera is passed from our DP to me because my hands were less shaky, and uh, I think I was a little bit stronger. And the camera was, you know, five or ten pounds, but when you do it over and over again, you get tired out. Uh, and... So then over the course, we would have a guard kill him, have him take an alternate route around the school and change his shirt. And then 
uh, you know, 30 seconds later, uh, Ace comes upon him again, and you think it's a different guard, he's in a different shirt, but it's just the same guy who has uh, changed costume. And so, you know, we had Ace take about the slowest route around the school uh, in order for people to take shortcuts and get there. So, you know, it comes out looking like we had maybe 20, 25 guards. We really had about six um, who were still uh, difficult to handle. Um, and I think a significant difference between, uh, you know, how a lot of action is depicted in movies today, whether it be Marvel movies or any other kind of action movie of the moment, uh, is that they are often, you know, sped up very quick, somewhat difficult to follow. But what makes them difficult to follow is that there are so many edits, right? You yeah, see, you're constantly you know, it's cutting constantly from changing one to perspective. Here, it's all one continuous take. And I know there are also, you know, there are kind of budget reasons for that and time reasons. Yeah, one has, sure. you know, you don't have time to constantly you know, in the editing room, piecing together, you know, shot after shot, let alone making all those different shots. But here it adds to, I find it added to the, um, you know, that sense of inevitability, kind of of claustrophobia, um, the omnipresence of all the people trying to attack him. Definitely. And I think um, if you look at some of the greatest action scenes in film history, you have uh, the hallway scene from Old Boy where he's got the hammer and he's just taking out guy after guy. Um, The Hidden Fortress with, Kurosawa has a great sword fight scene that is a lot of really long overhead shots. Um, In recent memory, uh, Marvel's Daredevil had some really great long shots. I think that more and more filmmakers are kind of employing the long shot thing. And I'll admit that maybe it can be a gimmick, but it's it's certainly a better gimmick than shaky cam, even if it is a gimmick. Um, And we definitely used shaky cam in this movie. I'm not going to shy away from that i mean action scenes are hard especially when you are using sharp swords and you've got no prop things uh so a lot of the time you know when you see a guy swinging a sword at our protagonist you know that's not a prop sword he's just swinging and i'm hoping that uh one of my actors doesn't lose a hand you've mentioned a few movies already uh old boy hidden fortress uh, and definitely old old boy was at the front of my mind as i was watching him kind of slash his way through and also um bong joon ho's uh snow piercer yeah as well. definitely uh where you you know you're in a single space uh incredible odds placed against our protagonist and we just see him mow down uh everyone's standing in his way but I mean, that's a classic action trope that i think you know you can't help but love but this, I mean, the filmmaker that came first to mind when watching this is Quentin Tarantino. And I yeah. think that he, there is a long uh, kind of shadow of influence for the past you know, 20, 30 years cast by uh, Quentin Tarantino. Not necessarily in a bad way, but he has really carved out a space as an incredibly popular auteur. I mean, taking this somewhat yeah. arcane concept of cinema that there is a, you know, the director leaves a distinctive imprint on every movie he makes and you kind of have to, you know, have the vocabulary definition list in one hand as you watch the movie and say, okay, this is what, you know, a Howard Hawks technique, this is what an Akira Kurosawa technique. Quentin Tarantino, I think, has a very, I mean, pulling from the exploitation films and kung fu movies that he so loved, he has a very uh, ostentatious style, one that's very easy to read, but one that is also incredibly enjoyable. And I wonder, uh, I I also, I want to say, um, I overheard you talking with some of the other filmmakers at Best Video uh, about Quentin Tarantino before the presentation began. And you were saying that Tarantino's in a kind of a tough spot because he is incredibly overrated by a lot of popular movie, you know, regular moviegoers. And he's incredibly underrated by a lot of people who who claim that, you know, they really they, the they are like the film right. a tour. So where, where right. do you, where do you fall on that overrating, underrating? And, and what I, were you thinking of when you made Ace? I think, uh, 
as most people do, I have mixed feelings on him. Um, I think that he is a fan. I think he is a powerhouse without a doubt. Uh, and you're completely correct that he has like carved out what we think of as the modern gritty action movie. And I think he's fully aware of it. Um, I think that trying to make an action movie as a teenager without taking some references or inspiration from Tarantino is pointless. And we didn't, so we didn't attempt it. We even have lines in the film referencing him um, openly using his name. And uh, I think that where his style becomes dangerous is when young filmmakers like myself see a lot of Tarantino movies and they say, this is a great movie. I want to make movies just like this because I think his movies are meant to be uh, imitators of classic Hong Kong cinema and spaghetti westerns. Um, And I think that you don't want to make a movie that's an imitation of an imitation. And I don't use imitation in a negative sense. I think that, uh, you know, Pulp Fiction is an amazing movie. I think Reservoir Dogs is his best, probably. Kill Bill 1 and 2 are great. I mean, I don't think that he's made, other than maybe Grindhouse, any bad movies. Um, I think that he is going down a dangerous path and maybe he is aware of it uh, in that I think he has always kind of been the star of his own movies in a literal sense in that he cameos, but also in that people don't go to see a Tarantino movie because they say, oh, uh, Bruce Willis is in that. Oh, you know, whoever's in that. I think they go to see it because it says Quentin Tarantino presents on it. Um, And I think he is beginning to play into that with the hateful eight. Uh, he really, really takes style over substance to the nth degree, which is to an extent the point of all of his work. Um, and what I wanted to do when when making my movie was openly acknowledge that we are taking style from him the same way he takes style from Kurosawa uh, and Sergio Leone and whoever. Um, but we are also trying to put in some some, some substance that I think his work can sometimes lack and I'm not you know trying to equate myself to him or belittle him in any way because I think his movies are incredibly influential and they can be really fun to watch uh with your friends at a party go to the theater and watch um and I think sometimes they can be more cerebral than people give him credit for just not on an emotional level more on a level of this is referencing this this is drawing inspiration from this I think he is constantly trying to comment on movies more than the story that he is telling centrally. Um, and that's something that inspired me in a lot of ways, because I think this movie is a commentary, a commentary on movies. Um, and I think that is totally an okay thing for filmmakers to do and kind of an important thing, because who is best equipped to comment upon the inherent deception uh, to movies, the this fabricated reality right. that and it peddles, and the directors themselves who want inevitably start out as fans, as people yeah, who consider, and Tarantino, exactly. again, is a model of that, of someone who, you know, worked at a video rental store, um, kind of immersed himself in the uh, kind of subculture of cinema. You know, yeah, and, and I, I think each generation, it. as film becomes more and more uh, prevalent in our culture, I think that we will get more and more directors who emerge as fans mm-hmm. um, and not as businessmen or people who just really have a passion for storytelling. Uh, I think that 
in this next generation of directors, you're probably going to see more Tarantinos and less uh, Hitchcocks and Kubricks. Uh, and that's not a bad thing, I think. Um, we, I think that becoming more self-aware and uh, fully becoming its own culture, the way that action movies are, can be a positive thing for the industry because it can bring in more creativity in a lot of ways. I think that it's... Uh, I mean, I Tarantino was definitely my favorite filmmaker when I was in high school. And I think yeah. that he speaks to a kind of high school male sensibility in his violence and, and yeah. the, you know, even though there's, except for Kill Bill, there isn't always a lot of gratuitous violence in, in uh, Tarantino I movies. Agree. Like, I think people sell him as, you know, the crazy guy who fills huge balloons with blood and puts them on screen. But Pulp Fiction, there's not that much. But it's not, it's not just the reputation. It's, you know, when you're watching Pulp Fiction, it almost feels more violent than it actually is. Yeah. And part of that is because of the the fluidity and casualness and violence of the language. Inevitably, I mean, yeah. these people are, you know, gangsters and they're talking a lot about murdering people. But they also, they have a, a casualness towards violence that isn't just manifested when someone is hitting someone else over the head. I mean, it's kind yeah. of immersed the whole movie. And so by the time that you actually see blood, you know, someone's head exploding in the back of a car, you kind of, you're, you're prepped for it. You feel yeah, like you've been seeing definitely. that the entire time throughout. And I, I wonder if you'd push back against this a little bit. Um, but I think that this is, that Ace and also Tarantino as an influence is kind of a, a perfect model for what I think every high school or young filmmaker should be doing, which is finding someone they really admire and a recognizable style kind of like what everyone was talking about at that best video presentation recognizing the you know cinematic vocabulary that a filmmaker like tarantino uses and then i don't want to use imitate in a derogatory way but to say this is something that i want to replicate you know i recognize the importance of style in filmmaking it's not just about the story and it's not just about the words but this is an inherently visual medium and so i want to find different ways to represent my story in compelling visual ways and one way is finding someone who does it really well and then trying to do what they do and then after that seeing what works seeing what doesn't work and then finding your way but i think it's a great starting point for any filmmaker and tarantino um is a great person to start I, with i definitely agree i think um i think you know people get hung up on the idea that what they make in order to have them stand out needs to be wholly original. And I think that is an impossible standard to live up to. I think anyone will tell you that there are no new ideas. Um, and I think that Tarantino is open about the fact that he is uh, taking inspiration from other movie makers. And I think that that is not, that's not a bad model to live up to. I think um in order to, I think everyone's style is an amalgam of several other styles that they admire. Um, and in order to find an identity for yourself as an artist, I think that it's important to uh, take from artists that you really like. Um, and, you know, there's a big difference between taking inspiration and just direct plagiarism. Right. But, you know, if if you have a camera and are interested in film and you want to make an exact replicate of a scene from Pulp Fiction, then go ahead and do it. I think a few, maybe seven years back, a bunch of uh, young filmmakers just finished doing some project that they started working on where they were completely reshooting shot for shot Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I'm sure you've heard about. Um, And I mean, I think that, 
could be like one of the most educational experiences that you could do uh, as a filmmaker. Um, because every artist in, from all of history has taken from each other and expanded upon it and learned from it. But there is a big difference between uh, what you learn from watching movies and what you learn from making movies. And I loved how you made that point during your presentation, again, that referencing that uh, workshop that you gave back at Best Video. I've got a quote from your presentation there. You said, at the end of the day, if you hate it, that means you've learned from it somehow. You can study and prepare and watch a million movies, and none of it is going to give you the experience that actually going out and making a film will give you. Making mistakes, failing, succeeding, all of it will make you a better artist. When you said that at this video, when you were thinking about those mistakes, uh, what mistakes did you make while uh, making Ace, and, and what did you learn from that first feature-length filmmaking experience? Well, I think it's kind of a where-do-I-begin kind of thing. Um, but really I, thinking about what you're bringing to your next movie, like what are the things that you're going to pick up and take with you as you continue as a filmmaker? Well, first of all, better audio. Uh, would be nice. Uh, you know, they'll say it a million times. We talked about it at the presentation, too, uh, that audio definitely makes or breaks your movie. Um, and I think wa watching the movie, there are times when, you know, you just it's just difficult to get through for me because uh, the audio is difficult or there's something that I don't like about the cinematography. But I think that uh, the scenes for me that were the most successful were the ones where I really went in with a plan of exactly how I wanted to do it. Um, I had storyboards, I had, you know, concept art, I had the audio all set up, I had costumes in place and the props all in the right order. Um, everyone knew their lines. I think that preparation really makes a huge difference. And going into my next movie, I think there's going to be a lot more preparation and a lot more, uh, a lot more, this next film that I'm making is, uh, much less in the satire area. Uh, we're taking a lot of the kind of emotional uh, stuff that we did in this first movie and turning it up. And it's it's much more than Ace. It's a very honest movie. Um, it's very straightforward. Uh, it's, it's a character-driven piece. And um, I think that it's much more still uh, slow-paced. There's definitely some action in it. Uh, because I, I would be sad to ever do a movie without any action, but um, I think there's going to be a lot more still cinematography um, and a lot less kind of active in-the-moment things. Uh, and I think that's because I really want to explore that and explore making a movie that, instead of being just constant adrenaline uh, and then an occasional break for an emotional scene, is constant emotion and then some adrenaline to kind of ramp it up. Um, and so going in with better audio, more prepared actors, we've got more adult actors this time. Uh, last time we pretty much wrote one adult part uh, because we knew one adult actor who was the father of the main actor um, and had studied acting in college. And uh, I thought he did excellent, but, you know, overall, all, all I knew was teenage actors. And so this time I reached out to... Uh, teachers that I knew who taught acting and I reached out to a, just a lot of adults that I knew and I I wanted to create a world that felt lived in not just by teenagers um, and I think this new movie that I'm making similar to the last one is kind of a coming-of-age movie because that's what I'm really interested in right now being a teenager and uh, I think that we're gonna make it more effective by having adults and having models for the kids to 
look up to or to not want to become. What stage in the production process are you at right now? Are you writing the script? Are you corralling the team if you started filming? The script is finished. We are filming in August. Um, Three days after I get back from vacation, we're starting filming. We film from the 6th to the 27th, and uh, every Sunday is off, so it's going to be you know, very intensive and hectic, but I'm totally looking forward to it. Um, and we're filming like two or three scenes a day, some days. Uh, we've fortunately, last time we had one camera uh, that was a DSLR that I used. And this time I got a friend who has the same camera as me to loan me their camera too. So we'll be able to have some flexibility in that. But, you know, I, I think that you never feel like you're fully ready when going into a project. But, uh, and uh, same time last year, I felt the exact same way going into filming, but you know, I feel totally underwhelmed and underprepared. Um, and I've got five notebooks worth of storyboards at the moment, but still. And we, I mentioned this at the very top that you're 17, you go to educational center for the arts, but you are a high school student. I mean, I imagine one of the serious constraints on your time is that you also have, you can't dedicate all of your time to making movies. Well, uh, yes and no, actually. Um, Sophomore year, I had a very, very hard high school year. I did very badly in all my classes, and my mental health was not good uh, by any extent. And I had known, I think I knew that I wanted to be a director in fifth grade. You can find stuff I made on YouTube that's like me and my friends joking around. Um, I have Evil Dead posters that I've had since I was 11. Uh, and I, I think it probably started when I found my parents' Netflix password. Um and I had known for so long that I wanted to be a director and a filmmaker. Uh, and eventually I, you know, I talked a lot of times with my parents about it. And eventually we decided them very reluctant, me and me very enthusiastically that uh, I, I was not going to stay in the traditional, uh, you know, I was going to Wilbercross, just a public school in New Haven. Um, and we decided I was not going to stay in that traditional model. So at the moment I am being homeschooled, uh, and essentially, I have four hours at the beginning of the day where I would usually be going to cross where I'm just writing and storyboarding. And that's uh, I did that all of last year, and it was hugely helpful for uh, my mental health and just for how much work I got done. I wrote a 900-page screenplay. Um, I wrote probably five different screenplays, uh, and ultimately, like, I, I think it was hugely helpful um, I'm not saying that if you're a high school student and you're interested in film, you should do it because there are a lot of downsides to it, obviously. But that was something that um, there was a time when making making this movie, I had to juggle high school and that and making this next movie. I don't. And it is so much easier. And I'm cherishing the year, two years that I'm going to have where I don't need to have a job that pays for a home and I don't need to be in school. So I've got a little window of uh, free time, which is nice. When you look out at what your peers are doing, and other 17-year-olds in New Haven who you work with, who friends with, just people you're aware of, is there much of a high school or high school-age filmmaking community in the city that you are aware of? Do you feel like you can kind of tap into a community, whether uh, looking for actors or people to be involved in your work or just uh, to watch movies, bounce ideas off of respond to is there a community here that you feel like you're part of i think that um community might be a strong word but there are i know literally uh dozens of kids who are 
interested who are very interested in film um i think you know with youtube with accessible filming technology this next generation is just like gripping onto it uh very naturally um and i think that despite the fact that there are probably hundreds of kids just in new haven alone who are really into film there's not much of a community uh i think that you know teenagers uh just by the laws of nature are non not very motivated and um you know i found some young filmmakers facebook groups and stuff uh occasionally and i know there are a lot of like youtube channels that cater to young filmmakers but i think there's not much of a there's not much of a place where you could draw resources from or where you can find people i think you really need to go out into uh like ECA is where i know most people from because it's people interested in theater and visual arts um and I think you can find a lot in maybe your film class at high school, but really you've got to go out and look for it yourself. It's not something that uh, is already there. Um, and I'd be interested in working with more people to establish one, but I'm very busy at the moment. The uh, I mean, one of the goals of this show, this is the 41st episode, we have it every week, is to kind of highlight all the different people in the city who are doing interesting things around movies, whether they're making movies, whether they're teaching about movies. And one of the goals of Vine is to bring as many people into conversation with one another, or at least let them be aware of one another as possible. Because New Haven, I think, has a very well-recognized uh, kind of arts scene, whether music yeah, or um, you know, visual art. Uh, and I think that the movie scene is a bit fragmented and uh, as much work as I'm trying to do here, I really appreciate everything that Charlie Musser and Gorman Bouchard have done with the New Haven Documentary Film Festival, too. I mean, they're in their third year now. They just finished up their third year, and it was something like 11 days, 25 films. And they had a number of different student film uh, categories and, and days dedicated to just movies by SCSU students, I mean, mostly at the college level, SCSU, Yale. Uh, I think there were even some middle school students from East Lyme that they brought in. Um, they, they're really doing some interesting things to bring to provide a space for student filmmakers to share their work. And I know that's what Best Video is trying to accomplish with, with Best Fest as well. Um, but taking a, a step back from your maybe high school age cohort, when you think about some challenges and benefits of making movies in the greater New Haven area as you know a specific kind of region in which to make movies, a city in which to make movies, do you feel like this is a particularly... Hospital place, hospitable place for people like yourself. I think I think it definitely is. I think that uh, even though the you the film community is, like you said, fragmented. I think that everyone has a desire to work together to an extent. Um, and I think the art scene, the fact that there's such a prevalent art scene in New Haven, helps that a lot. Uh, but I think um, you know, just when making this last movie, uh, I found teachers who were interested in film. Um, I talked to Yale professors and students who read over the screenplay and uh, gave me notes and suggestions. I think that, you know, it, it was definitely a group effort. And there were a lot of people who I met, you know, who I had no idea existed just making this. Um, I One of my main actors uh, in this last movie, Martin Clark, um, has worked with uh, Stephen Dest before, who is uh, one of the very prevalent New Haven filmmakers. Um and uh, I had tried a few times to get into contact with him, but we had never worked it out. But I think that the experience that he got just from being a kid in New Haven, I think he was 11 or 12 and he acted in um, My Brother Jack. Uh, 
in a small role. And I think that he got that because his aunt uh, knew him and he was able to audition for it. And I think that New Haven, in a lot of ways, is a community with a lot of connections and uh, a lot of people that are closely knit. And I think that odds are, if you live in New Haven, you know someone who knows someone who knows a guy who is prevalent in the filmmaking community, um, which is very good. I I worked uh, recently, um, my mom had to make alcohol safety videos for uh, Yale freshmen that she had a local filmmaker help her with, and I was on that set, and then I emailed him and uh, asked if I could help on a set of anything he was working on, and he referred me to uh, a set of a Lifetime movie that Molly Ringwald was in that I was on for a day, uh, and that was a lot of fun. Um, she she seemed very nice, I said about one word to her. Um, I think I, I think I gave her a shy wave, and she like looked at me with her side eyes and then uh, went back on her and phone. And you'll never wash that hand again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, you know, before I, I want to know, you know, you've told us a bit about the project you're working on next, and I want to know what's next for Ace and where people can find this, what you're doing with it, what you're, whether you're sending it to film festivals or what the uh, kind of afterlife or distribution life for this movie is. But first, I've circled in my notes, be remiss if I didn't ask you about the cyborg arm that you built. Yeah, for, uh, for a lot this movie. of people have asked me about that. Though. It is a great prop. I mean, it's got these I, overlapping discs. And it's I mean, I've, al- I've always silvery. been an artistic person. I think uh, when I was little, and I still am really into comic books. I, I currently host a podcast on iTunes about comic books um, and comic book movies. Uh, What's it called? It's called the Hero Hype Hour. You can check it out. Um, it's it's me and two of my friends, one of which who was in the film, just uh, joking around for an hour straight every week. Uh, it's a lot of fun, but it's pretty stupid. Um, and so I was always into kind of that aesthetic of like, you know, nowadays, especially you see like layered armor and uh, stuff like that. And so when making the arm first, I just every every day when walking home from school, I would like look in the back alleys and stuff to see if there was any trash. And I found like a hubcap that I bent and turned into the shoulder. And I made a whole arm just basically out of trash. And I tried to fit it on the actor. And he said, it looks good. But when he took it off, he had like five cuts on his arm. And um, thankfully, he did not get tetanus. But uh, I said, okay, we need to rethink this. Um, so I went to the sports authority store and... Uh, I found just various like sportswear, which they like to make look really futuristic and manly because I guess it makes people who are playing sports feel more uh, more like RoboCop when they're playing. And uh, that was, thank God, fabric that was very comfortable to slide into um, and you didn't have to twist your arm when doing it. And so I got a bunch of that and I looked at the designs and uh, I bought a Dremel for like 20 bucks that broke like five times um, and... Uh, just a bunch of foam and kind of worked on doing that. And I think I have a background in the visual arts and drawing comic book stuff, graphic design. And that really came into play when I was making a lot of props for this movie. So I was really, I felt like if we could have this movie and have the cyborg look passable, then the movie would be cool. If we could have the movie and make the cyborg look really, uh, I can't swear on this, but bad, bad a, um, you know, I think that that would make an impression on people just in an aesthetic way. And so I put a lot of I think that cyborg arm I started before I even started writing the script. I think I was making it for a Halloween costume or something. And um, I put a huge amount of work into that. There were probably five cyborg arms 
laying around in my room that we didn't use. And ultimately, that was one of the things that I that I found myself like, you know, when writing the script, I would get home and I would be like, oh, I should probably write. But when making the cyborg arm, I'd get home, I'd be like, time to work on that cyborg arm. I mean, I think that as as fun and you know, as enjoyable as the cyborg arm is to look at in the movie, it's also another great example, just like we were talking about with the uh, kind of careful in-frame composition of a low-budget filmmaking technique that can have a really yeah. strong impact on the audience. I think I mean, all in all, I spent maybe 50 bucks on it. If you have one prop that has that level of um, kind of authenticity and care put into it that and it also appears in just about every scene in the movie. Yeah. I mean, it really gives the movie some, some weight to it. And, and it really, um, it's wonderful to look at. And it's, I think a really important lesson for people to think about. You don't have to spend a lot of money or you don't have to yeah. have, you know, access to, you know, CGI graphics or whatever. I'm going can... to have to send this to my main actor, Quincy, <laughs> who he hated that arm. I'm sure it's uh, terrible to wear. He, he I mean, we but, were filming in 95 yeah. degree weather, and he took off that arm at the end of the day. And his, I think he that single arm probably lost five pounds just in sweat. Especially weight. if parts were pulled from the trash, I can't imagine it was too yeah. enjoyable to wear. No, I mean but, it was mostly foam, a trash yeah. shoulder, and a glove. We had to put black makeup on his arm because there were holes in it that we, uh, you know, we needed so the arm would be flexible, but we needed to cover it up so it was well quincy it paid off yeah <laughs> thank it you did for pay off that. quincy thanks if you're listening so we only have a minute left i'm so appreciative caden for you coming by and talking about this movie where can people find more about your work as a filmmaker and also where can people watch ace in the short to, to long term well at the moment we are uh working on that kind of i think i should make an ace facebook page for people to like if they're interested in it uh we have one that's private but I just got an email like five minutes before I got here that we were accepted to uh, Action on Film International Film Festival, um, which was one of the film festivals of about eight that I submitted to. Um, don't know where it is, but you can Google it. Um, and I think it might be a little bit of a road trip for me and the cast to get down there. But um, I'm definitely excited for that. And if it's nearby or if you're in the area, uh, I'd love for anyone to come and see the screening of it. I'm super excited to be showing it to uh audiences who aren't my friends and family and um other than that at the moment the we have a secure screener but i can't make that public until all the film do you have a facebook page for yourself or twitter or a website yes for um i have you can anyone can follow my instagram at the real underscore caden um because i am the real caden great unlike the fake cadens out there uh and uh, if you follow me on that, uh, there should be information about it. And in the coming months, I think we will provide a online screener for it or maybe an option to buy a Blu-ray or something like that. Um, and there will be more information to come. At the moment, we're kind of in between film festival submissions and uh, just figuring out what we're going to do with this and working a lot on the next thing. So, Well, we'll definitely look out for the Action on Film Fest and anywhere else that this movie shows up as well as... Uh, the the movie that you're working on next. So Caden Rodems Boyd is a uh, filmmaker from New Haven, the writer director of Ace. And thank you so much for coming on the show, Caden. Thanks sir, for having me. It was a total pleasure. Okay, coming up next is Alicia's Cocktail Hour, and we will catch up with you next week with another episode of Deep Focus. <laughs>